0: So welcome everybody. So welcome to the June uh, NEAETC AIDS seminar. Really delighted to uh, see you all here and to have today's speaker. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Natalia Holt uh, in a moment, but I wanted just to. Um, set uh, aside before I forget some of the required things, so um, today's speaker has no conflicts of interest to disclose and does not intend to discuss off-label or unapproved uses of products or devices in any uh, advertising way, and there is no uh, commercial support for uh, today's uh, today's speech. So um, as many of you know the timber of the conversation around HIV has changed in the last you know, five years or so, uh, I used to be asked by patients in the clinic if there would ever be a vaccine, if there would ever be a cure, and I would, um, with confidence, tell them that no such thing was uh, coming around the corner soon. But now people ask me that, and there's reason to believe uh, uh, now, in 2014, that there's hope. There has been a cure, there has been effective vaccine, and I think we all believe we're, we're heading in the right direction. And uh, today's speaker is going to talk about, I think, some of the most exciting um, stories in the field around that. So um, Natalia uh, got her BA at at Humboldt, and then in 2009 got a PhD from Tulane, where she was funded by multiple um, sources, including the CDC, for her fellowship. And then after that went to the uh, Reagan Institute in in Boston, the NGH and Harvard-affiliated. Uh, uh, research under Bruce Walker, where um, uh, she had been until just recently studying along the way, um, uh, among other, many other things, but of relevance to her particular uh, topic today, um, the dynamics around CCR5 expression on the surface of cells and how that influences susceptibility of cells to HIV infection. But uh, Natalia also is a spectacular writer, and so she has an uh, award-winning science writer. And um, uh, just this past year, published a great book, which I read, recommend to all of you, uh, called Cured, about the story of HIV cure. And uh, she's far from done, having just recently left uh, her full-time scientist uh, work. I'm not quite sure how she was able to Right, such a great book, and published as a researcher, and uh, have a successful family and uh, uh, parental life. Very impressive. But now she's also onto a new project, has a new uh, book deal through uh, Little Brown, um, talking about women in science, a book called uh, The Rocket Girls, which sounds really fascinating, too. So thank you so much for coming. We're all really Thanks. excited about it. Thank out. you.
1: So I'm going to be talking about two men that have been cured of HIV. And their stories have completely changed HIV medicine. But the stories actually begin with two physicians. And this is Heiko Jensen and Giro Huter. And these two men are not what you would associate with big breakthrough medical cases. They're not from large research institutes. Heiko Jensen is a family doctor who has a small clinic in Berlin. And Gira Huter is an oncologist. Um, but these two men were able to do something very special. And they were able to do this because they weren't trying to cure HIV for everyone. They were simply trying to cure HIV for their patient. And so the story starts in 1993. And Heiko Jensen has a clinic in Berlin where he sees mostly young gay men. He sees a lot of HIV. And he's in Washington DC for this march for gay and lesbian rights. And he's there with his boyfriend. And his boyfriend has been sick with kind of flu-like symptoms. And his boyfriend Andrew tells him, I've cheated on you. And he's very apologetic, but Heiko is just crushed. And so he's sitting there in the Washington Mall and all of these beautiful cherry blossoms. And he just immediately realizes that his boyfriend has HIV. And even more than that, he knows that he has to do something to save him. So at that time, he was very influenced by Dr. David Ho, at the Aaron Diamond Research Center in New York. And at the time, Dr. Ho was a big proponent of this idea of hit hard, hit early, this idea of trying to crush HIV before it got a hold in the immune system. And so Heiko was influenced by this, and he realized he wanted to get Andrew on treatment as soon as possible. But the problem was the only drug that was available at the time was AZT. And Heiko knew from his experience in the clinic that this drug just wouldn't be able to keep Andrew alive. And so he made a phone call to Robert Gallo. So he had done a fellowship with Gallo. And so he called him just desperate. Is there anything you have that can help me and can help my boyfriend? And Gallo said, well, not really. But why don't you talk to this postdoc in my lab named Juliana Lizowitz. And Juliana said basically the same thing. We don't have anything that works in people. But we have this one drug that seems to work well in cell culture. And that drug is hydroxyurea. And Heiko said, well, this is the best lead I'm going to get. I'm going to try it. Um, And so at this time, 1993, this is at a time in HIV when you could try really risky drugs because the life expectancy was so low. And so he knew that even though he was taking this big risk, And giving his boyfriend, the first HIV patient, to take this drug, um, he still knew he would have to hide it, because as his boyfriend, it wasn't exactly ethical for him to be treating him. Um, So they went to this island off the north coast of Germany. And they hid there for a month. And every day, Heiko would take a ferry to a nearby hospital and get the drugs that Andrew needed and bring them back. And as the days passed, Andrew just couldn't take any more. And he finally said to Heiko, I can't do this. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to take these drugs anymore. And he left him. He left Germany. And for Heiko, this experience gave him this inspiration, this passion to cure HIV, or at least give his patients whatever he possibly could. And so it really changed how he decided to treat HIV and his patients in the future. Now, a few years later, in 1996, was a medical student in Germany. And he wasn't interested in HIV at all. He wasn't interested in infectious disease. He wasn't really a very good student at this time. (laughs) Um, But he happened to be sitting in the medical school library and he was reading the latest issue of Nature. And he saw this paper that grabbed his attention. And this paper was looking at a mutation in the CCR5 gene that gives resistance to HIV. And so they had identified a mutation called Delta 32, which is a small piece of the CCR5 gene that's missing. And people that have this mutation end up being resistant to HIV. And so it's found in fairly high frequencies of Western European populations. And if you're a homozygous for this gene, you're resistant to HIV, which about 1% of Western Europeans are. And so as soon as Giro read this paper, he thought, well, HIV is over. Now we have this easy path forward. Things are going to be all cleared up. That same year in 1996, a young German student came to see Heiko Jensen in his clinic. And he had done something very risky. Just a couple of days before, he had been at a party. He'd had sex with someone he shouldn't have. And now he was worried he might might have HIV. He was starting to have flu-like symptoms. And Heiko diagnosed him, found out that he did have acute HIV, and decided to start him on this trial. And so this trial was three drugs. And one of those drugs was hydroxyurea. So you can see that this was directly inspired from his experience with his boyfriend. And he wasn't treating all his patients with these drugs. He was only treating a very small number of patients who were very early in infection, and who he believed could take these drugs responsibly, because it was a difficult regimen of drugs to take. And so Christian, his first Berlin patient, did find the drugs very difficult. He took this complicated schedule of drugs. And while he took them, he did visualizations. So he remembered this toilet bowl cleaner commercial from the 1970s where a blue toilet bowl cleaner is dropped into a bowl of water and it magically all turns clear. And so as he took the drugs three times a day, he visualized them clearing the HIV from his body. Now, 1996 was the worst year of Christian's life. <coughs> he was diagnosed with HIV. And after that, he then uh, went to the ER and had epididymitis. And during this time, he had to stop his medication. And So this is a graph of the virus. So you can see that during acute infection, he had uh, typical high viral loads that then dropped off. He then had a little peak that came back when he went off the meds the first time for his first hospital visit. And then a few months later, he was diagnosed with hepatitis. He went off the drugs again. And at the same time, he lost his grandmother. It just seemed like life was falling apart. And when he got out of the hospital, he was sitting in his dorm room in Germany. And he just, for the first time, was starting to feel healthy. And he went to the window. He took a deep breath of air. And he knew in his heart that all the HIV was gone from his body. And he decided he wanted to stop taking the drugs. So he told Heiko this. And Heiko, of course, told him, you've only been taking these drugs for six months. This is not long enough to have eradicated HIV. And if you go off the drugs, the virus will come back. But Christian was very passionate. He just believed the virus was gone from his body. And so he stopped the drugs. And this is kind of a surprising action for him, because he typically listened to what Heiko said. Um, but Heiko wasn't particularly worried. He figured, well, you know, we've lost this one patient in the trial, but not a big deal. He can just go back on the drugs when the virus came back. Um, and then what happened was is that the virus didn't come back. So Heiko decided to call Juliana, tell her what was going on, said, have this patient. And Juliana first didn't really believe him and then finally came out to Berlin, saw the data for, himself, for herself, and realized that they needed to get some heavy hitters in HIV involved so that way they could find out what was going on in Christian and why the HIV hadn't come back. And so the first person uh, they called was Bob Silicano. And he had just published a very influential paper able to find very small amounts of HIV and T cells in the blood. They then called Cecil Fox so that he could find virus in the lymph nodes. He had just come out with a very influential paper on that as well. And then the last person they called was Bruce Walker. And here he had just come out with this paper looking at CD8 T cell responses in HIV controllers and showing how they relate to HIV control. And so the results were interesting. They sent a liter of blood to Silicano, and at first he couldn't find any blood at all. And then as kind of a testament to Christian's immune system, he decided to completely rework his assay and make it much more sensitive. And when he did this, he was able to find about three HIV positive cells in a sea of 44 million. And of these, there were replication-competent HIV. So this was a sign that there was really no reason why HIV shouldn't be coming back in Christian. It didn't really make sense. Um, And Cecil Fox, uh, as well, found a trace of HIV when they did a lymph node biopsy in Christian. So to understand what was going on, they sent blood from Christian back over to the US again to Bruce Walker so that he could be tested in his CD8 T cell assays. And here, things started to make sense, because now they found that his T cells were responding very strong. So he had this similar response to HIV controllers. Now, there were many reasons why they didn't believe Christian was an HIV controller or a long-term non-progressor. Those are The reasons are that he had acute HIV with a very high viral load, with low CD4 T cells, and that he had replication-competent HIV and that his HLA type was not of a subtype that's usually associated with control. So for these reasons, they didn't believe there was a genetic basis, and they believed that it was due to the therapy. Now since that time, there has been a paper published this year um, that does indicate that there might have been genetic reasons for this control, though it's actually still debated a bit with the authors. So the answer is that we'll probably never know exactly why the HIV hasn't come back in Christian. Um, But what's really interesting is what's come from these results. So in 1998, they had determined that HIV wasn't coming back in Christian, and the case got an incredible amount of media attention. He was called the Berlin Patient in the New York Times. Reports of an HIV cure were reported in Newsweek and Time, and and all over Berlin, papers were just screaming about the first AIDS cure. (coughs) Um, People were very excited. The next year, the paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And almost as soon as it was published, it immediately got split up into two lines of research. So some of the collaborators were very interested in the effect the early therapy and treatment interruptions had on Christian. So the fact that he had been treated so early and that he had had these two treatment interruptions that weren't planned but were just because he had been hospitalized. And they believed that maybe these treatment interruptions had helped kind of prime the immune system, kind of given the immune system a glimpse into fighting HIV so that it could really come roaring back. And the second group of collaborators believed that the result was due to hydroxyurea. So that it was this drug combined with the antiretrovirals that gave this unique advantage in purging HIV. So at first, Um, Bruce Walker and Eric Rosenberg were very excited about treatment interruptions. The results were very promising. So you have, you can see in patients that are acutely treated, their T cell responses are very high, similar to those of long-term non-progressors. And similarly, their virus was disappearing. So this was published in Nature in 2000. People were very excited about these results. But then, not so much. By 2004 it was obvious that this therapy wasn't going to work, that the virus would return. And that's what happened in these patients, is that eventually, as promising as the results seemed at first, the virus returned. So now for hydroxyurea, there are sort of two approaches. There was this Heiko family medicine approach. And so this idea is that you have <coughs> patients that are selected, that we know can take the drugs responsibly, um, that are very early in infection. and whose dosage and timing of the drugs is carefully regulated to make sure that it's not toxic for them. Um, But when it moved to a large pharmaceutical trial, things changed. And now, because they were worried about getting enough patients for acute infection, they took any HIV patients at any point during infection. Uh, They changed the dose and timing so that instead of breaking it up three times throughout the day, they would just take one dose, so it would be easier for patients to take. And then, most to the detriment of the trial, it's hard to say, they added a drug called Xeret. And a lot of the reasoning behind this was because hydroxyurea itself is an old drug that really no one can make much money on. Um, But this Xeret, while it wasn't exactly a new drug, it was created during the 60s by the same person who made AZT for cancer. Um, It had recently been patented by Bristol-Myers Squibb. So it really represented a big profit. So, as soon as Heiko saw what was happening with these large scale clinical trials, he dropped out of them and instead pursued the smaller clinical trials. And at first, in these small clinical trials, things looked very promising. We had patients that were treated soon after infection, and uh, they had low no viral loads, and it really seemed as if their responses were very similar to that of the Berlin patient. But then, when it moved into clinical trials, the large clinical trials, there were big problems. It, it turned out that the higher dose of hydroxyurea was associated with fatal pancreatitis. And so patients that had gotten this dose had a lot of side effects, and there were two people that died. Uh, and I think Juliana says says it well, the problem with this drug, if no one can make money, even the best drug in the world will fail. And this is definitely the case with hydroxyurea, because it's a drug that was never given, perhaps, the best chance it, it could have been. Um, and because of these trials, it's a drug that nobody would ever want to go back to now. And certainly, we have better options. But at, at the time, it was, a, it was a big loss to Heiko and his collaborators. So the next year, in 2005, Timothy Brown was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. Now, he's an American living in Berlin. He had been HIV positive for 10 years. And his family doc, just by coincidence, was Heiko Jensen. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, his oncologist was Giro Huter at Charity Hospital in Berlin. And as soon as Giro met Timothy, he just had this crazy idea. And he thought, what if we take stem cells from a person who is resistant to HIV? So he remembered back to that med school library, that paper he read. And he thought, well, what if we take stem cells from one of these people that has this delta 32 mutation, and we transplant them into Timothy, so that his immune system then will be able to defeat both HIV and cancer? And you can imagine that the response he got from this idea was not very positive. He was told by many specialists why this would not work. And really, it was a pretty crazy idea. It had never been done in an animal model before. It had never been done anywhere. Um, and there were many reasons why the infectious disease doctors at the hospital particularly thought it wouldn't work. And so they explained to Gerald how the HIV reservoir works in HIV, that it is all over the body, in your gut, in your brain, in your lymph nodes, in your bone marrow, and that the idea that you would be able to eliminate all this HIV through a bone marrow transplant just didn't make sense. They also, of course, talked about the risk of stem cell transplants, that this is a risky procedure, that about 40% of adults getting an allogeneic stem cell transplant uh, don't survive. And then perhaps the most, the point that they tried to stress the most was this idea about CXCR4 viruses. And so the idea here was that while viruses that use the CCR5 receptor are kept out of um, human cells by the delta 32 mutation, there is in fact another group of viruses that use a different receptor called CXCR4 and they aren't, aren't, they aren't upset at all by the delta 32 mutation. And this is a small group of viruses that is typically found later in infection. So it was likely that Timothy had these viruses in his body. And what is worse is that these viruses are more pathogenic and more aggressive than the CCR5 viruses. And so they told Gero that by doing this transplant, you can actually make his HIV much worse. Uh, but Gero ignored all this, and he decided this was this was a strategy that was going to work. And he felt that because there were people that had this Delta 32 mutation that were resistant to HIV, it was a strategy worth pursuing. So when Timothy failed uh, two rounds of chemo, he knew that this was the time that they now started working. So he told Timothy, take a vacation and try to relax, because we're about to do something that is really crazy. So Timothy went to Italy, and hero's first business at the hospital was overcoming the hospital policy there. So they had a policy that HIV-positive patients couldn't get a stem cell transplant. And this was left over from the 80s, when HIV was seen as a death sentence. So the idea of giving a stem cell transplant to someone with HIV just didn't make sense. So Giro first had to overcome this. And then he had to find a donor that had this delta 32 mutation. And it's likely that this could only be done in Germany. And this is because the stem cell registry in Germany is the largest in the world. And because the number of people with the delta 32 mutation is so much higher in Western Europe than it is in other parts. So they found not one donor for Timothy, but 12 potential donors. And they picked the one donor that they felt would best fit him. And so they brought Timothy in for the transplant. And everything seemed to be going well. Uh, Timothy felt great. He went back to work. He went back to the gym. And his genotype changed. So before the transplant, he was actually heterozygous for the delta 32 mutation. So he had one copy of the gene. And then after the transplant, he was homozygous. And his virus became undetectable. So everything was looking great. And Gero was very excited about the results. And then unfortunately, Timothy had a relapse of his cancer. And now he needed a second stem cell transplant. So they brought in the same donor. They gave him another stem cell transplant. But this time, Timothy didn't recover. In fact, he just kept getting worse. He had a bizarre set of neurological symptoms. He was mysteriously losing functions in his arms and legs. And he just he became a vegetable lying in bed. And Gero basically rated his survival at zero. And he, he told uh, Timothy's boyfriend and his family that this is it. We just have days left. Um, and then in a the last ditch effort, they decided to do a second brain biopsy on Timothy to see if they could figure out what was behind all of these odd neurological symptoms. Mm-hmm. And what they found when they did this biopsy is that there had been a medical error during the first biopsy, and there had been a tear that was letting air into Timothy's brain, and that accounted for more than 90% of all his neurological symptoms. So they repaired that and hoped for the best. Now, if it wasn't for the relapse and all of the problems that came with it, Giro was very excited besides that, because in terms of HIV data, things were looking great. So, his virus went from high of, uh, of several million down to becoming undetectable and remained that way, although Timothy was not on any kind of therapy. And at the same time, his T cells were going up. So, things were really looking good. Uh, so, Giro felt that even though Timothy himself was struggling, it was worth it to try to put this data together because it would be interesting to the field. And so he. He started to put a paper together that he submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine. And he put a proposal together for CROI, the big HIV conference. Um, But altogether, this was a difficult year for them. Timothy was not doing well. His paper was rejected by the New England Journal of Medicine. And then Dero got a poster at CROI that was largely ignored. People mostly just walked by. He didn't get much attention. It didn't seem that people really believed his data like he was hoping for. Um, And of course, Scarrow was a a big outsider in the field. He had never treated an HIV patient before. He was an oncologist. Um, And then in addition, there were other clinical signs that weren't looking good with Timothy. So CCR5 positive T cells were found in Timothy when they did a rectal biopsy. And this was a very bad sign because it meant that the the transplant hadn't been able to transform all cells. That means HIV would be able to enter these cells and gain a foothold again. And at the same time, they found X4 viruses when they did this ultra deep sequencing on Timothy. And here was a really bad sign, because this is exactly what the infectious disease doctors had worried about. They'd worried that these X4 viruses would now take over and make Timothy's HIV quite a bit worse. So then, Uh, At the end of the year, Gehrl went to a think tank in Boston, and he was trying to figure out how he could understand better what's happening with his patients. And he was finally kind of interacting with people in the HIV community and getting more information. And while he was there, he met a reporter named Mark Shufs. And Mark Schus was so impressed with this case that he wrote this article for the Wall Street Journal. And now Gero was worried that by writing this article, it would hurt his chances of publication. But in fact, the opposite happened. Gara went from being this outsider in the community to suddenly having a standing. And soon after uh, the Wall Street Journal came out, his paper in the New England Journal of Medicine was accepted. Um, and this was kind of funny, because it actually contained just about the same data as that first paper had. And as time passed, what we found is that Timothy Brown today all our fears of what would happen to him from those tests were unfounded. x viruses didn't come out, and although there were some detectable viruses, it's now been found that we really can't detect any HIV in him. And this is a man that has undergone any test you can think of. Colonoscopies, brain biopsies, lymph node biopsies, cerebral spinal fluid, he's done it all. And in this paper that was published last year, um, the lead author who is one of Timothy's doctors in San Francisco says, the patient certainly needs any clinical definition for having achieved a long-term remission and may even have had a sterilizing cure. So we're now at the point with Timothy where we're really thinking about there's no HIV in him and this might actually be a sterilizing cure. So similar to how the first Berlin patient's paper was split up into two after it was published, after paper was published, it was also split up into two. So there were some that were really interested in the role that the genetic therapies played in Timothy's cure, while others were more interested in the role bone marrow transplants played. And so this is a similar idea to what we had in the first Berlin patient, this idea that we really don't know what is behind the cure because there's so many different components involved. And so one of the studies that was interested in looking at this was done by Dan and Tim at the Brigham Hospital in Boston. And this was the Boston patients. And so they looked retrospectively at at patients who, like Timothy, had HIV and cancer, and who had also received allogeneic stem cell transplants. But there are some differences to what these patients received. They didn't receive uh, the intense conditioning and radiation treatment that Timothy received. They also didn't experience graft-versus-host disease, which Timothy did. Um, And then, of course, a very key point is that they didn't receive HIV-resistant cells. They received a stem cell transplant of just regular cells, but not those that contain the delta 32 mutation. And so these cases inspired a lot of curiosity, because the researchers found that the level of the HIV reservoir seemed to have disappeared But when they went off therapy, the virus came back. So here is a big difference from Timothy. And so while it might seem like these cases are a disappointment to the field, it gives us some great insight into how these differences to Timothy are what what makes the difference between controlling HIV and not controlling HIV. Um, And I guess another point here is that stem cell transplants were never the answer to curing HIV. It was always just part of Timothy's therapy. It's not something that we would ever, of course, give to patients. So how have these personal stories influenced research today? Well, the first Berlin patient, Christian's case, has had a remarkable impact on early therapy. Um, And so we can see this in studies uh, such as the Visconti trial, um, which have looked at patients that have gotten early therapy and their subsequent control, which is similar to what Christian experienced. And the researchers of the study have said that the the reason they tried it was was because of the Berlin patient. So his story has just inspired a lot of interest in early therapy. Um, And we've also seen this, of course, um, with such dramatic cases, such as the Mississippi baby where we see that early therapy given aggressively um, can have this, this very interesting effect, in possibly in pediatrics. And Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, has said that he believes children will be the first group that's cured of HIV. And we can attribute a lot of this interest in early therapy to that of Christian. Now, Timothy has influenced a very interesting um, a very a very interesting field looking at gene therapy for HIV. And so this, of course, does not involve allogeneic stem cell transplants, which are very risky. But the idea here is that you can take stem cells from a patient with HIV and then make them resistant to HIV. And then this can be done either through RNAi or through these very clever little molecules called zinc finger nucleases that are able to cut HIV. And so they're able to make the cells look like those, those people who have the Delta 32 mutation by hampering the CCR5 gene. These cells are then transplanted back into a patient where they have this selective advantage in the face of HIV. And what we've seen is that a number of, of research institutes have said that the funding um, they've given gene therapy is really based on Timothy's case. So while gene therapy for HIV has been around before Timothy's case, It wasn't given the seriousness and the funding that it is now. Um, And we now even have data um, looking from Carl June's group at UPenn uh, in humans where we see here that there are six patients um, that have been given uh, cells that have been treated with zinc finger nucleases that have targeted CCR5. And the results are still very early. So we can't say exactly what will happen with these patients, but we do see some indications that they're able to possibly control HIV. So this is a field that will be really interesting in the future. And here's kind of a breakdown of some of the clinical trials that Christian and Timothy's experiences have inspired. So we have Christian has inspired both early therapy, but he's also inspired a lot of the HDAT clinical trials. And These are trials looking at molecules that are sort of a similar idea to hydroxyurea, this idea of attacking the cell instead of the virus in order to eradicate. Uh, And then Timothy, of course, has inspired all of these very interesting and exciting gene therapy trials. So pursuing cure strategies for HIV is this inherently risky thing. But it's these personal stories that have just this ability to change future and funding of HIV research. And we now just have so much exciting data that's happening in clinical trials that are in progress right now. So thank you so much for listening. Any questions out there?
0: Maybe I can start with a question. You know, I'm curious about, you know the culture of science is is uh, you know conservative, and people like to see proof and, and and yet you can see how the threshold for proof can change depending on how popular attention has changed. You know the New England Journal flip flop on the Hooter paper is kind of a great example of that. And uh, and so that that you know with that context of sort of wondering whether. How well scientific dogma is going to square with the way forward for a cure? I'm I'm curious about sort of uh, o- openness to the innovations to come. <coughs> you know, there are multiple studies that, that are ongoing that are inspired by these prior stories, but there's probably um, also labs that were working on different ideas um, that that. That, that would either have to innovate and change and, and get, get on that bandwagon or might still be poking holes on it. So I'm curious as, uh, at, at those ideas. And I'm curious as you sort of were writing this and as you go around and speak how much receptivity there is to this and how much people do sort of say, but there's this problem and there's this problem. How much is this sort of still contrary to the dogma of HIV and how much has it become accepted and how open are people to this idea?
1: Yes. Well, I think what's interesting in this case is that you have a number of researchers who had no background in HIV, but who had background in gene therapy or in certain cancer drugs, and have now come over to HIV because they see there's this opportunity that they have expertise in that they can help. Um, but of course, on the other side, I think it's it's good that we're skeptical of these questions, and it's it, that's exactly what we should have. You know, we need to have both. We need to have the enthusiasm and the skepticism. Um, and I've also found that, you know, even though we have these clinical trials, there's still a big fear about how you get to the next step, how you get a large pharmaceutical company to then take it from positive clinical trial data to a real therapy that can go to people. And that's something that, you know, a fear that Carl June has talked about and um, many other researchers, this idea of who will fund that next bridge. And I think that, you know, for a large part of it, it probably depends on how good the data is.
0: I know you're aware of the research funds for HIV uh, really very restrictive right now. I wonder whether you had any uh, uh, any insight into what percentage of that very limited money is being uh, invested in cures.
1: So there was a $100 million initiative, of course, for HIV cure that was announced at the end of last year. And it still seems unclear exactly how that is going to work and where, where things will be taken away from. I think that's something that it's not unique to HIV. It's just sort of across the board for all scientific fields. Um, so it's, it's hard to say you know, how that will impact research.
0: Karis, do you, do you, do you, do you know, have other allergenic transplants in this circumstance been recorded just so that we have other cases, you know, it it, it seems like something that ought to have been repeated or surely has been repeated or maybe hasn't somewhere.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of interest in that now, actually. There's been several grants and several researchers now that are looking into this and are especially going back retrospectively to these cases. Um, So, yeah, I think that's something that we're going to see more data from. It'll be it'll be interesting to see, especially the differences, you know, between the Boston patients so it's such a different experience with their stem cell transplants from Timothy. Um, but also there are also researchers, particularly um, like Stephen Deeks at UCSF, who's very interested in these other aspects, looking at the graft versus host disease and, and looking at these conditioning regimens and how they alone could possibly be used as a treatment. So I think there's people sort of working on both sides of that.
0: interesting if we could, you know, the, the way you get in the door nowadays is that you have leukemia like Timothy Ray Brown or lymphoma like Boston uh, patients, and, and you have an indication for a stem cell transplant and you go through it. Um, but as the, the Carl June paper suggested, maybe you don't have to have that. Maybe you could just, you know, somehow uh, at least get the, the cell surface molecules replaced I wonder if people. Do you know of people exploring some of the more dangerous side of bone marrow transplants for people who don't have indications? You know, some of the conditioning regimens you might get if you didn't. You know, even if you didn't have graft versus host disease, but had similar stuff. Are people looking into that?
1: I don't know if anyone's looking into that retrospectively, but people are looking at that prospectively. Yeah, especially you know for for patients who really have failed treatment options, and that's I mean that's a group that I think. People are very interested in trying some of the strategies on Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what comes of that.
0: What's the prevailing hypothesis of why the uh, CCR5 uh, uh, mutation is so much higher in some populations in Western Europe?
1: Yes, this is, a, this is really a mystery. So there were some papers that were published saying that perhaps it had something to do uh, with the plague. And that there was a link to how, how the plague might use CCR5 to enter cells, and that because of that, uh, there might be higher percentages of people without a functional CCR5 in Western Europe. Um, and that is actually kind of a controversial area because there's sort of been papers on both sides of that one. So it's it's just it's not something that's clear at all right now. But it's such an interesting question.
0: You seem pretty negative about any future for hydroxyurea. Um, do you think it has any hope of uh, being retried? And do you have a sense of what mechanism might be underlying its uh, uh, activity?
1: So I, I don't think there's much hope for it. There are a few physicians that actually do still believe in it and are still trying it on patients. Um, but I think it's it's just, it, you know, it's. We have we have drugs now that I think have a have a lot more hope than hydroxyurea, Um, but yeah. So the idea is that hydroxyurea can kind of freeze the cell, and it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it in combination with DDI and some of these other drugs that you could kind of like be able to freeze the cells and then be able to kind of substitute out the nucleotides. I mean that is it's a strategy that does make sense. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have the data to back it up.
0: Boston patients had a lot of um, hullabaloo around them. You know, these are the neck cures, and
1: yes. and uh, and then everybody
0: was disappointed to hear that that wasn't the case. And um, I wonder if if uh, I, you know who, the, the the voices I haven't heard amid that was sort of what that was like for the patients to. To ride that wave. Did you hear anything about how you know how that was for Kretscius's patients?
1: Unfortunately, I never got to talk to them, yeah. but I talked with Kretscius and Tim Henrick quite a bit about it. Yeah. Um, and I think that they were well insulated enough that although it was a disappointment for them, it wasn't this kind of crushing blow because really they had lived like this for decades now, and mm. this wasn't this wasn't a crushing blow. So that's good. But I'm sure it's disappointing. Of course.
0: Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you so
1: much.